So let's begin by generating our motivation. So here we are on another Friday night. Sentient beings in samsara. Now how often during the day do we think, I am a sentient being, a being with a mind that's obscured. How often do I think I am in samsara? Or when we wake up in the morning, do we think, here I am, I'm so-and-so, I know this people, I do that, I'm going here today, I'm going there today, and I'm going to try and arrange all these things so they happen the way I like. When we wake up in the morning, you know, our, our uh, first thought is this concrete image of who we are and how we're going to get happiness and avoid suffering. But we never think, oh, I'm an obscured being in samsara, trapped by ignorance. And that's much more of a realistic, accurate statement than my name is so-and-so, and this is my occupation, and this is what I like to do, and this is what I'm doing today. But it's really imperative for our spiritual practice to have an awareness that we are migrators in samsara so that we can stay focused on what's important in our life, which is getting ourselves and other living beings out of samsara. In other words, overcoming the ignorance and other afflictions that trap us here. So let's try and remember that. Because as much as we can remember we're living beings in samsara, the more we will remember to be tolerant of and patient with other living beings in samsara who are likewise trapped by their afflictions, the more we will be strong to stand up to the afflictions, our own and sometimes others' afflictions too. Instead of giving in to the afflictions, letting them run the show. So it's a shift in perspective of who we are and what we're doing, and what is important. And so one of the important things is to plant the seeds of bodhicitta 
in our mind again and again. And so let's do that now. Aspiring for full awakening. So that we'll have the ability and the internal freedom from ignorance and self-centeredness and so on, so that we can really be a benefit to ourselves and to others, and not just keep going round and around. So generate that motivation. So we've been discussing the six root afflictions, and we finished the first five. We're not done with them, (laughs) but we finished reading about them. Um, They're still quite active in our mind streams. And so now we're going to start on the sixth root afflictions, which has five branches. There's uh, five types of afflicted views. So these are real juicy ones <laughs> to notice in ourselves and to notice also how our society encourages these, as, as well as how it encourages the first five root afflictions. Okay, so afflictive views, this is the overall category, the sixth one. Yeah, and then we'll get into the five types. So the above five root afflictions are non-views, whereas the sixth, the afflictive views, includes five erroneous views. These five erroneous views are forms of corrupt intelligence, that either grasp the I to exist inherently, or based on that, develop further mistaken conceptions. Okay? So, they, t- they team up with ignorance, especially how the Prasangika school defines ignorance. Yeah? And, uh, and then it proliferates other afflictions as well. So these um, five act as the basis for all problems caused by afflictions and all other mistaken outlooks, and they create turmoil in our lives. Wisdom is the antidote. Okay, so they act as the basis for all the problems called caused by afflictions. 
And I remember first learning about the afflictive views, and it's like, well, they're views, but, you know, how are they related to my attachment and my anger and, you know, those kinds of things that really cause me a lot of disturbance day to day. Yeah, Because we never think of our uh, disturbing emotions as, you know, rooted in wrong views, in afflictive views, in uh, apprehending things in an erroneous way, or of uh, making up, uh, yeah, having our own inner conspiracy theories, which are what a lot of these views are, okay? It's conspiracy theories that we have made. We don't need QAnon. QAnon makes up the external conspiracy theories. But all of those come about because of the internal ones that we make up. That sometimes we are so familiar with, yeah, that we don't think of them as views or as erroneous. Just like the QAnon people don't think of you know, their ideas as views or erroneous, they think it's true. Yeah, this is true. So we're we're the same way with our internal uh, views. So saying these views are corrupt intelligence. Yeah, when we first hear this, our wrong views are intelligence? They're called intelligence? They're stupid. Why are they called intelligence? Okay, well, they're corrupt intelligence, but still, okay. So saying they're corrupt intelligence means they are incorrect speculations or conclusions reached by incorrect analysis. And isn't that the definition of a conspiracy theory? Okay, incorrect speculation. Yeah, you heard something from your friend or read it on the internet. Or a conclusion reached by incorrect analysis. Yeah, your analysis is, my friend believes this, therefore it must be true. Or Q said it, and he knows everything, it must be true. Yeah, or what I hear a lot of them do is they read things and then they compare the numbers and they make uh, links between this and that and the other thing, and it all makes sense. Yeah, because you you link different numbers together and different letters of the alphabet, which. Uh, you know, are the first letter of of somebody that you're talking about who's doing something, something, you know. Okay, so lots of this kind of stuff. Okay, so they're incorrect speculations or conclusions reached by incorrect analysis. They are unreliable minds. Okay, they are not reliable cognizers. They're unreliable minds that lack a realistic foundation. So the foundation of these views is skewed or cued. (laughs) 
Okay? So they are called intelligence, prajna, because they distinguish their object and they know its qualities. So they're like intelligence that way. They distinguish their object. They know its qualities. Yeah. They, uh, they analyze. They're intelligent in, that, in doing some analysis. analysis. They're corrupt, and here the word is klesa, which is often translated as afflictive or delusion, um, because they misapprehend their object. Okay, so these views totally misapprehend things. Yeah, but we don't often notice that. Although afflictive views are numerous, these fives five are prominent. So there's so many afflictive views. Okay. So the five, uh, view of a personal identity, view of extremes, view holding erroneous views as supreme, view of bad rules and practices, and wrong views. Those are the five, okay? Some of them have different translations in different texts, but uh, I like these translations. <laughs> so the first one's view of a personal identity. So this one is a big one. This one and ignorance, according to Prasangika, they are best friends, okay? Really good friends who stick by each other, never contradict each other, reinforce each other, support each other. Okay? So according to all Buddhist schools, except the Prasangikas, the view of a personal identity is a corrupt intelligence that, referring to the mental and physical aggregates, so our body and mind, grasp them to be either a self-sufficient, substantially existent I or mine. Okay. According to the Prasangikas, it is a corrupt intelligence that, observing the nominally existent I or mine, grasps it to exist inherently. Okay, so both of these are concerned with creating views of I and mine. Yeah, but there's some differences here. First of all, the, the view that's common to all the Buddhist schools, or we could say the lower schools, yeah, is at the base of the, uh, the observed object that the uh, that this view is looking at is the aggregates. According to the Pasangika, it's the mere I, the I that is only name. Okay, so that's a big difference. One's grasping the aggregates, using the aggregates as the basis. The other one's just using the mere I as the basis. The second difference is that the first one 
uh, grasp the aggregates as being a self-sufficient, substantially existent person, whereas for the prasangika, uh, that mind grasps the mere I as uh, an inherently existent person. Okay? So, you know, uh, uh, a self-sufficient, substantially existent person is a much grosser idea than an inherently existent person. Okay? So of the two graspings, yeah, of persons and phenomena, because we talk about two kinds of self-grasping, persons and phenomena, just like we talk about two kinds of selflessness, the selflessness of persons and the selflessness of phenomena. The view of a personal identity is included in self-grasping of persons. Okay. However, self-grasping of persons includes grasping all persons as inherently existent. Okay. Whereas the view of a personal identity grasps our own I and mine as inherently existent. Okay. So uh, self-grasping of persons, I grasp all of you and all sentient beings, including the dogs and cats and crickets um, and frogs and turkeys and deer, all of them you know, grasp all of them as um, inherently existent. That's self-grasping of persons. But this one, view of a, of a personal identity, is limited to grasping myself as inherently existent. So when we talk about the 12 links of dependent arising, this one is the first link, okay? Because... How do we create karma? It's we start out by grasping ourselves as inherently existent, not by grasping a pot or, you know, a person who we've never met as inherently existent. Okay, so the aggregates are uh, collections of many moments and of many parts. Okay. They are also transitory. They perish in each moment. They, they uh, are characterized by uh, momentariness, subtle impermanence. So translated literally, the Tibetan term for Asakya Drishti is Jigsok La Tawa. And Jigsok is, uh, okay, Jig is impermanent, and sok is, or transitory. Sok is a collection, and then tawa is view. So it's literally translated, it's view of the transitory collection, meaning the view of the, um, the sometimes it's called the view of the perishable aggregates. Okay, that, that, the Tibetan term is not a literal translation of the sa- of or it's not yeah it's not a literal translation of the Sanskrit term yeah it's a not, you know how we in English sometimes don't translate the term exactly we put in 
something else that makes more sense in English. So that's what they did with the Sanskrit term here. They, they made it into a Tibetan term that makes more sense to them. So specifying that they are transitory or perishing shows that they are not per permanent. Saying that they're aggregates indicates they're plural, they're not unitary. Okay, so what's the first kind of I that we want to refute? The I that is grasped by the non-Buddhists? Permanent, unitary, independent. So you can see that, uh, you know, by translating it as view of the transitory collection, it's really emphasized. It's transitory, so it's not impermanent. It's a collection of different parts, so it's not unitary. Okay, so the term itself eliminates the possibility of a permanent unitary person based on the aggregates. Okay. So you, you're probably wondering where I got view of a personal identity. I got it from Bhikkhu Bodhi. And why did I use his translation? Because when I spoke with Tutan Jimpa uh, about some of the terms for things, Jimpa said, uh, very good sometimes to use the same terms as the Pali translators do. So in many cases, I did that. Yeah, and this is one of the cases. Because view of a personal identity in English, it makes more sense, doesn't it, than view of a perishable collection. Yeah, view of a perishable collection, what does that mean? You know, that I had a dozen eggs and somebody step, stepped on them? <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. But remember, although the literal term view of the perishable collection, for the prasangikas, the observed object is not the perishable collection of the aggregates. It's the mere eye. When Jeffrey was talking uh, a couple of days ago on only name, the eye that is only name, the eye that is the uh, nominality, it's that eye that is regarded by the, this view and then completely grasped as existing in the opposite way than it actually exists. Okay? So the eye actually exists by being merely designate, designated, and there is nothing beyond that that is the eye. Okay? The view of the, uh, you know, of the, the personal identity makes there a really solid, inherently existent I that is, you know, really there and quite strong. So it grasps it totally opposite. Yeah. So it's not just like 10 degrees off. It's 180 degrees off completely. Yeah. So whereas the I is imputed in dependence on the collection of aggregates, we're talking uh, here, yeah, well, you'll see. View of a personal identity 
holds it to exist as an independent entity. Okay? So something that is not, the, this view holds it as, as a, a person that is not imputed independence on the collection of the aggregates. It's something that exists by itself, under its own power. It just is, you know, it's self-created, it's self-instituted, it's uh, not dependent on anything else. Don't you feel that when you say I, don't you feel that that's often the way you exist? I'm just me. I'm not... I'm not dependent on something. I don't exist simply because the causes for me exist. I don't exist because I'm designated on a bunch of parts. No, I am me here. Okay? So how we apprehend the I is totally the opposite from how it exists. Okay. So when you think about it, that this is, you know, the uh, this together with ignorance. Ignorance grasps uh, the aggregates as truly existent, and other persons as truly existent too. But it's the same mode of grasping ignorance in view of a personal identity. So if you start things out on believing like this, yeah that the person is inherently existent, the aggregates are inherently existent, everything inherently existent. You're starting out, you know, your whole premise is the exact opposite from the truth. Okay? If you start out believing something that's the exact opposite of how things actually are, Whatever you build upon that, is it going to be reliable? No, it's going to become, it's going to stink, you know? Stinky views. It's, you know, it's going to be polluted. Yeah. So that's why when we talk about the meaning of the word polluted or contaminated in Buddhism, it refers to ignorance or the latencies of ignorance, because that just contaminates everything. Yeah. If you, you know, if you start off with muddy water, you may have good tomato sauce and, and nice uh, cheese, but your lasagna is going to be awful, no matter how many nice things you put together with it, because you're starting out with muddy water. Okay. So all Buddhist schools refute the view, the refute the belief in a permanent soul or self that is asserted by non-Buddhists. How many of you grew up believing in a permanent soul that was really who you were? Yeah. We were taught that from from the beginning, you know, weren't we? There's a permanent soul created by God, and that's who you really are. 
So where does original fit sin fit in? Is it inherent in that permanent soul, or is it something that came afterwards? I, I didn't grow up with, with this, so I don't understand how the pieces fit together. It's inherent? Huh? Okay, so, so original sin is inherent in that soul. Okay. That God created with compassion. The devil, God created the devil too? Yes, the devil sitting around the apple tree convinced Eve that she should eat that thing. So the devil actually caused, the, the original sin was to eat of the tree of the fruit of knowledge. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, but God then created the devil because he created everything, didn't he? Okay. So, okay. So this is actually interesting. So you see how a whole religion grew up around this kind of story of creation. Yeah. You have a whole religion, a whole philosophy that grew up around a story of creation. And, and again, a story of who you are and your place in the universe. And then, of course, everything we, you know, that story doesn't hold up to reasoning and logic. So everything you build on top of that is also going to be perverted in some way. Yeah. But that's, you know, most people are taught this and learn it and believe it. And, you know, and for some people it helps them, you know, if they think of, of God and they can be a better person, they have ethical conduct and all. But the whole story, yeah. I, I have been reading Casts, a book by um, Isabel Wilkerson. Excellent. And I, uh, in talking about, she differentiates caste from racism, which I don't, I won't go into right now. But the whole idea of different caste, caste meaning your place in society that you are born into. One of the, the first thing that creates caste is the origin stories in different religions. In uh, Hinduism, it is, uh, you know, ever, the universe was created by Brahma. The Brahmins were, it came from Brahma's head and his mouth. The, um, the uh, warrior class, the ruling class, came from his arms. Yeah, the uh, merchants came and worker, you know, merchants came from his thighs and the lower class, all the workers came from his feet. And then there's the outcasts who weren't created by from any part of Brahma's body. Okay, so you're taught this and then according to what 
caste you are born into, that is your social ranking in society. And there's no way you can not be that. Okay. You can marry, if you marry somebody from a different caste, which uh, used to be outlaw, you know, um, illegal, uh, that still doesn't change your caste. So you are that forever. So uh, then there's a story in the Bible that Noah had three sons, Ham, one, one, his name starts with a J, and another son. Okay. Anybody remember the names of Noah's sons? Anyway, Noah, uh, uh, this is how she tells the story. Noah uh, likes drinking wine, and he got kind of uh, intoxicated and went back to lay down in his room, and he just took off his clothes and laid down. And Ham went inside and saw his father undressed. And then when the other two sons found out about it, they put a cloth on their backs and walked backwards into the room and then put the cloth on top of their father to uh, to hide his nakedness. And when, when uh, Noah came to and he realized that Ham had seen him, he was totally irate and he cursed Ham and all of Ham's descendants. And Ham was supposedly had black skin. So you learn this story, you know, as a child, and then, you know, who are the good people in society? The ones with the white skin, who are the bad people who were cursed by Noah, you know, the black people. And so, the, you know, starting from this religious story, uh, you get a caste system, yeah, in Western culture. Yeah, pretty amazing. And I had heard something about, I remember hearing things about Ham and Ham being black. I didn't know the whole story. But, yeah, this is how many people who are, uh, who are Christian, you know, how, how what we call racism, what she calls caste, and the two are different, how that evolved among people who were deeply Christian from a biblical story. Okay. So this is another example of you have a, a story, a legend, a myth, whatever it is, and then you learn that when you're young, you never hear anything else. And based on that, then you build up many other beliefs and many other theories about other people and your place in society, their place in society, and so on. Okay. So I, I found it quite interesting when I was preparing for class, thinking about this, because I had just read that in, in, in her book, 
in the morning. And uh, yeah, how those things that we learn when we're young, that are, are stories, myths, legends, but are said to be true by the people who believe in them literally, how they act as the basis for how we construct our place in society and other people's place in society. And then everything that comes from having a rank in society that is very difficult to change. And if I can go off topic for a minute, but talking about this, she also explained how the Nazis in the 30s when they were creating their philosophy and validating their philosophy of Aryan superiority over the Jews, they looked to America for examples of how to oppress your underclass. Because America not only had the views from these religious things, but had laws making certain castes inferior, you know? And in the time, well, slavery clearly did that. Uh, the black codes that arose during um, the Jim Crow period, so many things were illegal. You know, intermarriage was illegal. They made all these uh, laws by which they could uh, arrest African Americans and imprison them, and then uh, work the chain gangs, so that make them into slaves again. All sorts of incredible laws. That, and the Nazis studied how the U.S. did this, and they wondered how... Did America preserve its sterling reputation for being a land of equality when it was filled with these kind of laws and immigration policies that didn't let certain people immigrate to the country? You know, there was a period of, I think, 40, 40 years, maybe longer, where uh, Asians could could not immigrate in the country, you know, and and on and on and on, you know, it was really um, it's rather surprising. Why is it surprising? Because when we were little kids, we learned a different view about America, and. Texas right now, they, when they write um, uh, textbooks for children, they often uh, do it for Texas because it's a big state. And so it, the te whatever they write is going to go to a lot of schools, and so then it's easier to adjust for e other states. But Texas is now rewriting its books um, to take slavery out of the history of Texas. 
Yeah. They want to take it out of the history of the state. You know, so, um, yeah. So it's the same thing that the Buddha is explaining here, you know, how you start with a wrong view and then everything you do, you, you create an image of yourself, who you are, how you relate to everybody else, your place, what you can do, what you can't do, what other people can do, what they can't do, how other people should treat you. We talk about this in Dharma class all the time, don't we? Yeah. We create all these views, yeah, our rules of the universe, and we, these things are true to us, but they are all based on rot, on, you know, views that are incorrect. But you build something up, and then, you know, you have to defend it, don't you? So you create a social order, and then you defend it, and people who want to change that social order, boy, you take your wrath out on them. And if they overstep their bounds of what's permissible for them to do, you know, if you're the dominant caste, you keep them in place. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, at the time of slavery, then they would send people out to, to look for the runaway slaves, you know. And actually, this is how the police force began. You know, it was a force of men in, who went out looking for runaway slaves. Okay, so then you fast forward to today's, you know, and you have, you have uh, you know, demonstrations and protests and in the eyes of the dominant caste, these people are stepping outside of where they belong. Yeah? And they need to be restrained and punished. And so you get the pr police brutality. Yeah? So it's, it's incredible, you know? how this happens on a societal level, but also in our own mind, how we rank ourselves in relationship to other people, how we think what is permissible and impermissible behavior, how people talk to us, what they say, how they treat us, where they sit us, yeah, and how easily, you know, we can be offended if we have a view of equality and the other people we're relating to do not have that same view. They're holding on to the view that they were taught that has been prevalent for since in this country, even before it became a country. Yeah. And for us, you know, all of our wrong views and emotions, it's been going back, forget before it was a country, you know, that was like not so long ago. 
but ours has been going since beginningless time. Uh -huh. So you can see it, the power of the repetition again and again and again. Uh -huh. So... Okay. <laughs> so according to the lower Buddhist schools, the view of a personal identity observes the aggregates and mistakenly believes them to be a self-sufficient, substantially existent I and mine, a person that controls the aggregates and a person that owns the aggregates. Okay, so both, so it, it talks about it grasps the I and mine. The I is clearly a person. The mine is also the per, a person. Although we may say the thermos is mine, the gong is mine. Those things are examples, they're illustrations of mine, but mine, M-I-N-E, refers to the person that is the possessor or the owner of these things, okay? So, uh, so the person that controls the aggregates, that's grasping the view of a personal identity, grasping I, and view of a personal identity, uh, grasping mine, is creating the view of the person that owns the aggregates. Okay. So do you feel like you control your body-mind? Or you should be able to? Do you feel like you own them? They're yours? They're not anybody else's? Hey, you. sorry, you cannot take my hand. This is mine. <laughs> okay. So here we have it. So here the observed object is the aggregates and the apprehended object and the conceived object are a self-sufficient, substantially existent person. So this is in the course view of uh, personal identity. The view of a personal identity is mistaken with respect to its apprehended and its conceived objects because it believes the aggregates to be a self-sufficient, substantially existent person, although they are not. So this view believes a conspiracy theory, and it's believed this conspiracy theory since beginningless time, and it's built 84,000 other afflictions on, you know, from this root. So according to the view unique to the prasangikas, the view of a personal identity observes the mere I and mine, the I and mine that exists by being merely designated in dependence on the aggregates. So being imputed or designated in 
dependence on the aggregates tells us already that the I is not the aggregates because it depends on the aggregates. So the I and the aggregates are different, not inherently different, but they are different phenomena. And the I depends on the body-mind so that you can't uh, have a person without having a body without having a mind there. And some, some beings are formless. They don't have gross bodies, but most of the other ones in samsara do. Okay? So the per- view of a personal identity observes the mere eye and mind that exists by being merely designated in dependence on the aggregates and erroneously grasps them to be inherently existent. So that's like, and they use the example and the teachings a lot, when you see something that's speckled and it's coiled in a dark room in a corner, and you go, it's a snake, and you get terrified. Okay? Because in the dimness, in the unknowingness, yeah, then you see something, you misapprehend it, and you impute something on it that is not there. You, in this case, you impute a snake on what you later, when you turn on the light, discover is simply a rope. Okay? But because you said, oh, that's a snake, then you get terrified. There's actually just a rope there. Is there any need to get afraid? No. But we imputed snake, so then we get terrified. Okay. What do we do when we're terrified? We run around, we scream, we cry, we throw something at the snake, we run up the stairs, we call for help, we're totally freaked out, and all that is really there is a rope. Okay? So, it's similar... You know, there's the body and mind. Yeah. We designate I independence on them. But then we look at that merely designated I and we go, oh, it's inherently existent. It's real. I'm me. And then we go, oh, because I'm me, then. I want this and I should have it. I'm entitled to happiness and this interferes with my happiness and I'm going to clobber it and uh, my rules of the universe are best and what I believe is always right and on and on and on. And all that's there is something that exists by mere name. It's not a name, but it exists by being named. That's all. 
And again, we're going, we're going bananas because we completely misapprehended something. Yeah. And what is, you know, when I first heard this example of the, the snake and the rope, I thought, what's going on here, you know? It just didn't make much sense to me. Yeah. But when you really look at it, if you have the basis of a rope, there is nothing in the rope that makes it a snake. Absolutely nothing in the rope. Okay? So no matter where you look in that rope, there is no snake. And you can designate snake all you want. You can talk about the snake that you saw to all your friends who believe you. You can get a posse together to go kill that snake. There is no snake there. Even though you imputed one. Similarly, on the mere eye, there is absolutely no inherently existent person. Not anywhere. So just as if you look everywhere in the rope, you can't find a snake, you can look everywhere for the mere, you know, with the mere eye. There is no inherently existent eye. You can talk about one, you can make one up, you can make a whole philosophy based on it, but there isn't an inherently existent eye there. It's completely fabricated by our mind, erroneously. Okay? When you really think about that, and you think that's the whole basis for how I see the world and how I see myself. I don't know about you, but for me it's very scary because it's like what I believe is a total hallucination. I'm, it's like I am believing a rope is a snake and going around all day believing that and constructing my life on that belief. And that's exactly what we do when we grasp the mere eye as inherently existent. Totally misapprehending it. Constructing you know, towers of beliefs and emotions and should and shouldn'ts based on something that isn't there. Gives me the creeps. And yet I believe it. Yeah? Yeah? In fact, we can't even tell the fake eye from from the mere, the merely designated one. You know, we can't tell the fake eye from the eye that exists. I mean, that's how stupid we are. Yeah, it's like you can't tell the rope from the snake. <laughs> yeah. You can't tell. The eye that exists from the eye that doesn't. 
And so we get so attached to this I that does not exist. And we can't even apprehend the I that does exist. It's crazy. Really crazy. Okay, so here, talking about the prasangika view, the observed object is the mere I and mine, the one that exists by being merely designated. You know, Jeffrey went into the, this whole thing about only name. He didn't even want to use nominality. He said, only name. Oh, that's the literal translation. So here the observed object is the mere eye and mind, and the apprehended and conceived objects are an, an inherently existent eye and mind. This view is erroneous with respect to its apprehended and conceived objects because it mistakenly grasps the mere eye and mind to exist inherently as an independent entity unrelated to any other factors, independent of everything else. To to prasangikas, grasping a self-sufficient, substantially existent I and mine is a coarse grasping. It is not the actual view of a personal identity, but it is only imputed as such. And yet we believe that one too. We believe that one exists. But it's not even the actual view of a personal identity. It's only imputed that as that. The subtle view of a personal identity that grasps the I and mind to be inherently existent is the actual view of a personal identity. This has ramifications for the meditation on selflessness because realizing the selflessness that is the absence of only a self-sufficient, substantially existent I and mine will not free us from samsara. Yeah, realizing that that coarse self does not exist will not cut the root of samsara, according to the prasangikas. The Prasangikas assert that the view of a personal identity is a form of the ignorance that is the root of cyclic existence. It is an innate affliction that is present in all sentient beings, including babies and animals, as an instinctive sense of an inherently existent I and mine. It's innate, it's instinctive. This one we did not learn. Yeah, we may learn uh, psychologies and philosophies to validate how we see the I. That's the acquired view, uh, the acquired view of I and mine. Okay, 
or the, the acquired view of, of, of personal ident identity. But the innate one, we didn't have to learn anything. It's just there. Yeah, from beginningless time. In babies, in all persons, you know, animals and so forth. Okay, it's or artificial form or it's acquired form is expounded and justified by incorrect philosophies. So we have this innate grasping, yeah, and then we develop a whole philosophy around it, you know, that uh, says why it exists and what it is and what it does and so on and so forth. Okay, so Prasangikas assert that the view of a personal identity is a form of the ignorance. Uh, okay, I read that. Okay, the view of a personal identity has two facets. One grasping I an inherent, uh, as inherently existent, and the other grasping mine as inherently existent. So I refers to the person while mine refers to what makes things mine. Mine is the owner. Okay. Based on grasping I, grasping mine or my arises. So, you know, first we create this wrong view of the person, then we make the person into the owner of the aggregates and whatever else it wants. So the I and mine are one nature, but different isolates. They cannot be separated, but are nominally distinct. So both the I and mine are the person. Yeah. But when we say different isolates, it means that things are different in either name or meaning. The I and the mind are not different in meaning. They both refer to the person, but they have different names. One is called I, one is called mine. So they're nominally different. In debate language, that's called being different isolates. Okay, so they cannot be separated, but are nominally distinct. Our aggregates are examples of mine. Okay. Conventionally, the five aggregates are said to be mine. They belong to the I. So just conventionally, the way we talk, yeah, this is my mind, this is my body, these are my feelings. Okay. However, that, so that, that part is okay, just on a conventional level, saying these are mine. However, grasping them to be inherently existent is self-grasping, but it is self-grasping a phenomena because the aggregates are not the person. So the aggregates are phenomena, so grasping them to be truly existent is self-grasping a phenomena. When we grasp the I, which exists by being designated independence on the aggregates. Yeah, that when we grasp that is inherently existent, that's uh, the view of the trans of um, 
the personal view of personal identity. Okay. So our aggregates are examples of mine. Conventionally, the five aggregates are said to be mine. They belong to the I. However, grasping them to be inherently existent is self-grasping a phenomena. The view of a personal identity grasps the mere I to be inherently existent and views the aggregates as being under the control of this person who makes things mine. Okay. So once we designate something as mine, be it our bodies, minds, material objects, ideas, or relationships, we relate to it in a different way. If a new car on the showroom floor is dented, we aren't disturbed. But once we see this car as mine, we become incensed when a small scratch appears on it. True or not true? Okay. My body being attractive or unhealthy invokes strong feelings of delight or worry. My ideas being accepted is a source of great pride. So as soon as we call anything mine, it takes on a whole other meaning. Okay? So especially in our world now, my political party, oh my goodness, yeah. My religion, the color of my skin, yeah, all these things, as soon as we label my, yeah, my profession, my socioeconomic status, yeah, my level of education, my possessions, my career, my second house, yeah, my marriage, my divorce, my kids. You know, as soon as we put my or mine, yeah, the whole way we look at something totally changes. Yeah, completely changes. Isn't it? Yeah. Holding the strong notion of an inherently existent I, we cherish ourselves more than anything else. True or not true? Definitely true. Yeah. Everything that gives us pleasure is seen as good. Even if it's bad for us, it's seen as good because it gives us pleasure. We cling to it and want more. All that interferes with our happiness or harms us 
is considered bad. We become hostile towards it and seek to destroy or avoid it. Okay, so based on the grasping at I, our different ideas of good and bad, okay, desirable, undesirable, attractive, disgusting, all of all these judgments that we make of people and uh, and things are based on first grasping that I and then considering it more important and then seeing everything with that periscope view that we talk about so much. Yeah, there's the whole world and things and we have this itty-bitty periscope. You know, it's like the size of a dime and that's how we view the world. And then there's, you know, everything above and in back and below us and around us that we just don't consider as things to take into account. Okay. To obtain and protect our objects of attachment and to defend them against any harm, we engage in many destructive actions that harm others and plant seeds of destructive karma on our mind streams that will ripen as future painful experiences. Yeah, so we start out with this grasping and then we wind up with all sorts of negative karma. And who does negative karma hurt? The one who did the action. It hurts us the most. It hurts other people also, but us the most. Because the view of a personal aggregate, uh, a personal identity, is an erroneous consciousness that misapprehends the I, it can be eradicated through realizing the wisdom that knows how the I actually exists. Okay? When you're seeing something as exactly the opposite way of how it exists, if you develop the wisdom that sees how it exists, it's going to be able to topple all that ignorance, all those wrong conceptions. Okay? So identifying the disadvantages of the view of a personal identity motivates us to cultivate this liberating wisdom. So the more we think about this and how grasping at I and mine uh, affects us, how it creates our samsara, and how we are miserable in that samsara, then the more we will have energy to develop the wisdom that sees things correctly. Because that wisdom, you know, can, can obliterate the, uh, the ignorance and the view of a personal identity. 
Both the Pali and Sanskrit traditions speak of 20 false views of a real self that stem from the view of a personal identity. Okay, actually there's 25 false views of a real self, but this particular sutra mentions 20 of them, and the one that, you know, it's for each for each of the five aggregates. There's four, so you get twenty. And the one that it doesn't mention is the uh, I and the aggregates being completely different and unrelated. So that's those are the extra five. So wait until you hear what the what the twenty are. You'll you know it'll ring some bells. Yeah, if if you've listened, you know. His Holiness uh, often talks about this verse from Nagarjuna uh, where uh, he's examining how the Tathagata exists. Yeah, and the Tathagata is not the body, and the Tathagata does not possess the body. It is not dependent on the body. The body is not dependent on the Tathagata, the body does not possess the, uh, the, the Tathagata does not possess the, the body. Remember that? And then he says, he does that same meditation saying I instead of Tathagata. Okay, so listen to what these 20 wrong views are. Okay, so they're in one of the Pali scriptures, uh, the shorter series of questions and answers that records a lay follower questioning Bhikkhuni Dhammadina about the view of a personal identity, how it comes to be. So she responds, an untaught ordinary person. Okay, so an untaught person is here means somebody who doesn't know anything about the Dharma. They're an ordinary being, they don't have any realizations. Okay, who has no regard for Aryas, so doesn't even think about the Arya beings or respect them, and is unskilled and undisciplined in their dharma. So they do all sorts of, you know, they, they're impulsive and just do, you know, a thought comes in their mind and they do it. Yeah, just ordinary people, okay? So these people regard one the body as the self, or two, the self as possessing the body, or three, the body as contained in the self. Sometimes it's worded as the body as dependent on the self. Four, the self as contained in the body, or the self as dependent on the body, okay? He regards feelings as the self, or the self as possessing feelings, or feelings as contained in the self, or the self as contained in feelings. He regards discrimination, this is the third aggregate, as the self, or the self as possessing discrimination, or discrimination is contained in the self, or the self is contained in discrimination. He regards miscellaneous factors as the self, this is the fourth aggregate, 
or the self is possessing miscellaneous factors, or miscellaneous factors as contained or dependent on the self, or the self as contained in or dependent on miscellaneous factors. He regards consciousness as the self, or the self as possessing consciousness, or consciousness is contained in the self, or the self is contained in consciousness. And then the extra five are uh, um, the self and the body are separate, the self and the feelings and the, and the self are separate discriminations. Yeah, so that would make 25. But here it lists 20, okay? Why? Because the other five, Bhikkhuni, uh, Dhammadina, already negated earlier in her talk. Yeah. So the guy who asked questions is supposed to remember that. Okay. So Pali commentaries explain these four positions for each aggregate using the example of the relationship between the self and the body. So that's used simply because the body is the first aggregate. Yeah. So we use the body as an example, but it's very important not just to go through that thinking of the body, but to go through it with the feelings and discriminations, miscellaneous con factors, and consciousness. Yeah, if we don't do that, then, you know, our wrong conception of I will hide out somewhere else in one of the other aggregates. Okay, so the first of uh, how they explain the, the four positions. So regarding the body as the self is like regarding the flame of an oil lamp as identical to the color of that lamp, of that flame. Okay, so regarding the body as the self is like saying the body is the self. So that's like saying the flame of the, of the lamp is identical to the color of that flame. Actually, the flame and its color are different. But here, you know, I mean, we could very easily look at a flame and, and confuse the, the flame and the, and the color. Or we can look at it and say, no, the flame is one thing, its color is something else. Okay. Then the second is regarding the self as possessing the body is like regarding a tree as possessing its shadow. Okay, so the tree has a shadow and the eye has a body. Or the eye has feelings or the eye has consciousnesses. The third, third one, regarding the body as being in the self or being part of the self or dependent on the self, so it has all those different meanings, is like regarding the scent as being in the flower. Okay. Is the scent in the flower? If it were in the flower, we couldn't smell it. Unless our nose is inside the flower, too. Okay. 
So, in, so that's the Pali example. In the Sanskrit tradition, the, exa- the analogy is a bag, I, that's like the I, with many items inside of it. That's the aggregates. So that's how you would describe the relationship of the I and the aggregates. Yeah. A lunch pail with lots of things inside of it. Yeah. Or a trash bag with many things inside of it. Okay, the fourth one, uh, so that, okay, that was the third one. Then the fourth one is regarding the self as being in, wait a minute, regarding the self as being in the body or part of the body or dependent on the body. Oh, the first one was regarding the body as being dependent on the self. This one's regarding the self as being in the body or part of the body. is like regarding a jewel in a box. Okay. In the Sanskrit tradition, the analogy is the self being like a lion in the forest. Okay. In Pali tradition, it's like being a jewel in a box. So regarding the first three yeah, examples, we may think, Hmm, well, the flame is not identical to its color. Yeah. The tree does not really possess a shadow. The scent is not in the flower. But a jewel can be in a box. So since this last analogy is true, So that would be like the self as being inside the body, which we sometimes feel like it is, isn't it? It's floating around in there somewhere. Okay. So since this last analogy is true, we think perhaps the self is in the body. But to understand the analogy, we must ask ourselves if the relationship between the self and the body is like the relationship between a jewel and the box it is in. Here we're just talking about how the, the relationship of the self with the body on the conventional level. Is it like a jewel in a box? Okay. A a jewel is a distinct phenomena from the box, and it can be removed from the box and looked at alone without seeing the box. However, removing the self as an entity totally distinct from the body and looking at it in its own right, divorced from the body, is not possible because the self is dependent on the body. It is designated independence on the aggregates. Similarly, the lion is a distinct entity from the forest where the I depends, whereas the I depends on the aggregates. Okay, So when we are meditating on emptiness, and we're checking how the eye exists, we can go through these 20 views and see if the eye exists 
inherently in any of these ways. If the I existed inherently, we should be able to find it with somewhere within these 20 views or as totally distinct and unrelated to, you know. So that, so that's, because when you look at these views, there's always a dependence going on. And that is showing that on the conventional level, the, uh, the eye depends on the aggregates. But when we hold the eye to exist inherently, if it actually existed that way, then it should be something findable under analysis. And one of these 20 views should be where we find the eye. Okay? But when we look at all these views, yeah, and see if the eye can exist inherently in any of these ways, we discovered that it can't. Okay? That it can't. So existing conventionally in some of these ways is possible for, for the eye's relationship with the aggregates, but for if, if the eye existed inherently, then these, these 20 ways would have to be a type of inherent relationship, and none of those work. None of them work. Okay. These 20 false views are not the view of a personal identity itself. The observed objects of the first and the third, okay, regarding the body as the self, regarding the body as being in the self or part of the self or dependent on the self. Okay, those, the first and the third, are one of the aggregates and the... Uh, um, okay, the observed object of the first and the third are one of the aggregates and the observed objects of the second and the fourth are the I. Okay, so the first and third, the, the observed aggregate, the observed object is one of the objects, is one of your observed. Ah, the first and the third, yeah, the observed object is one of the aggregates, and in the second and the fourth, the observed object is, um, is the, the I. Okay. So these false views are not are not innate grasping, because according to the Prasangikas, view of a personal identity does not innately grasp the I as either inherently one or inherent or entirely separate from the aggregates. When you look at these four views closely. Uh, they boil. They all boil down to either the aggregates, af, uh, the aggregates and the I are inherently one, or the aggregates and the I are inherently different. Okay, but 
the view of the personal identity does not innately grasp the I as being either inherently one or inherently different from the aggregates. But if the I existed inherently, it would have to be either inherently one or inherently different from the aggregates. Okay? Because it has to be an inherent relationship. But when you check, is the I one with any of the aggregates? No, it's not the same as one as any of the aggregates. Is the I entirely unrelated to the aggregates? No, that's not the case either. But that would have to be the case if the I inherently existed. In conventional existence, you can have a dependent relationship. But remember, inherent existence means that the everything is exists in its own right and does not depend on any other factors. Okay. So because the 20 false views present only these two possibilities, and neither of them is how the view of a personal identity innately grasps the eye. They are acquired false views. However, if the eye inherently existed, it would have to be one of the four positions. Thus, to refute the view of a personal identity, we must also refute these 20. Okay, so it's it, it's the same as um, well. I, no, we don't need to go into that right now. Okay, so we can take one or two short questions, and then we have to stop. Yeah, venerable. At the beginning, you mentioned that the Tibetan translation of the Sanskrit term for view of the personal eye or view of the uh, transitory collection, that the Tibetan was more of a a loose translation. I'm wondering if there were, do, do you know? Of, uh, do I know close? how the actual Sanskrit yeah. term is translated? No, I don't. Yeah. Um, that's a question. Bhikkhu Bodhi may know how the, uh, how the Pali term is translated. Liter- more literally, I don't know. I was thinking about the um, observed object of the pers- view of personal identity being the mere eye, and wondering how does how does that view of the personal identity actually observe the mere eye? Because in the case of the rope and the snake, there is something appearing to our eye consciousness, mm-hmm. but then a conceptual mind comes in and mistakes it and thinks it's something other than it actually is. But, you know, there is something appearing. So in the case of the view of a personal identity, is it the case that the mere eye is actually appearing? Mm -hmm. And in that case, how? Because I always understood the mere eye or, or the merely labeled anything is something very subtle. It's like a subtle, they say t- you have to first realize emptiness yeah. before you can understand yeah. how things are merely labeled. Yeah. So I'm just trying to 
yeah. figure out how. Yeah, what they say is that the mere eye and the inherently existent eye appear mixed, and we can't discern the difference between them. So somehow the mere eye is appearing, but it's mixed with the appearance of the inherently existent eye. And we're very habituated with the appearance of the inherently existent one. And you and, think it's the same for other objects as well, like yeah, the table? Yeah. The merely labeled table does appear to our mind, yeah. but there's this overlay of inherently existing table, and that's all we can actually Yeah. Okay. 